G'day everyone, welcome to episode 32. It's uh, crazy times, we're more than halfway through season two and uh, today we're just going to have a, a bit of a conversation, story time, story time with Uncle B and Uncle T, um, but we're going to talk about just some of those intersecting bits and pieces that happen in our life, some of those major things that influenced us and impacted us most definitely, but uh, certainly T's got some stories uh, to tell around this. There's, there's lots that, probably more that happened to him in this space. I don't know why. I think he was a bit more prominent than me. He was, he was out there. I think I think it's also because I'm a bit of a sook and, <laughs> and things just hurt me a lot more. No, no, things hurt me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a softie. I don't know. Maybe I'll roll with it. Maybe I'm like one of those playful puppies that just goes along and is a little bit dumb. I just keep bouncing around. I don't know. Maybe I'm going to get to a part in my life where all this trauma piles up and I go, what the fuck just happened? So, T, I'm going to, going to open up with you. Some of those stories or any of those main sort of stories that intersected in your life, what's one that stands out? Well, you know, I think we've got to go back to episode four because there's a few things I need to add to a story that I told. Remember how I told that story that there was this young woman who I met in the, and I said metaphorically in the foyer of the church, she was on the way out and I was on the way in, right? Yeah. And so I, I'm going to tell a story now that's probably not going to put paint me in the best light. So I'm a little bit sort of anxious to tell this story, but nevertheless, this is the way it happens. And if we're going to be truthful, well, then we're going to be truthful. But flashing back to that episode, I said that there was this girl and that we ended up sleeping together. Now, the thing that I didn't share was that there was a guy who was ex-Revival Center who had actually started to try and recruit me into Great Big AOG. And so I'd known him from the Revival Center. And when I was going through a lot of my hard time and, you know, sort of dealing, he was really good to me, really, really good to me and sort of, you know, wanted to sort of help me out and stuff. But it was very much an evangelism thing more than anything else, right? He was trying to evangelize me into great big AOG. So he had actually broken up with this girl some time before, you know, like, I don't know, a couple of months or whatever it was. And I'd, I'd just come out of clubbing you know, where it was really incestuous and everybody dated everybody and everybody would date everybody's ex-girlfriends and stuff. And that's just kind of the way it was and slept with each other. And that was the way it was. And so they'd, they'd split up and then she started sort of making herself available and, and that's the way it happened. And so later on, when I told him that I'd slept with her, this is like some months after the, he was just really upset you know, as you could imagine, right? And he was like, you slept with my ex-girlfriend? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, nah. And yeah, he, he was pretty dark and, and pretty upset and pretty hurt, as you'd imagine. Fair call. Fair call. But, you know, as, as you say, I mean, you just come out of that scene, you know, give yourself a break. These things happen. And I think if we all reflect back on our journeys and the un unhealthy view of sexuality within the church, what you did really wasn't outside the realm of normality. It was just within that scene. It was something that was seen as probably uh, just not right. And it, you would have got kicked out if you, had, if you had been found out, wouldn't you? Well, you remember that was when the pastor took me for a drive in the car and asked me if I'd been sleeping with this girl and I told him no. You know, yeah. that was all that story as well. You would have you been kicked out. Well, possibly, yeah. yeah. 
I remember he went back to his dad and told his dad and his dad was livid. His dad was just incensed and that was it. His dad hated me from that day forward, right, which is, yeah, pretty full on. So anyway, he forgave me, right, and, well, said he did. And then we actually sort of started this sort of discipleship, friendship thing, um, which lasted for, for years. So he was basically, and you remember, right? Let, let's call him, I don't know, let's call him D. D was basically my best friend at Great Big AOG for the longest time. The, the way I remember it was we were sort of, you know, like peas in a pod. When you saw me, you saw you saw D. When you saw D, you saw me. We were always together and always hanging out. And I really thought that he had genuinely forgiven me, and maybe he had. You guys were inseparable. There was no doubt about it. And and I agree. It was, we always saw you together. D and T. DT. It's in, in Australia, DT is Dicky Togs, which is Speedos. Um, you together were a pair of Speedos. It was amazing. Yeah, you were. And, and that was something that whenever any of us caught up, we caught up with both of you. It was very rare to have a, a one-on-one catch-up. You you were inseparable. Yeah, we were mates. And it was it was this really strong discipleship relationship, you know, where he had been in the church a lot longer and, you know, you know, I'd, I'd come out of this, you know, this broken sort of revival center experience as well. And, and he understood that. And yeah, he, he was my mate. And, and whenever I would have questions about spirituality or that kind of stuff, I would, I would ask him and, you know, I, I don't know, looking back, I don't know if the relationship didn't sort of morph into something that was a little bit sort of codependent or whatever. I, I'm not sure. Um, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But but nevertheless, we became absolute best mates, and and that was the way it was. You guys were very similar. I, I, I saw both of you as evangelists, and you're quite hardcore around the way you went about things. I mean, different personalities, I think, and and slightly different ways about going about it. But in the end, I think the product was very the same. It was that hardcore evangelist, I'm going to save your soul, I'm going to go out in the streets, I'm going to preach, I'm going to do whatever I can to get another notch. Yeah, that's right. He used to speak to people on the buses. He would just randomly go up to them and start talking to them about Jesus. And and so I think that really influenced me a lot too and sort of pushed me down that road more. But I think, as you're saying, that was my bent anyway. So yeah, definitely. And we were, we were spiritually, you know, like they talk about sort of Paul and Silas, you know, like he was like Paul and I felt like I was, I was, you know, I was Silas and, and he was the, the spiritual, the larger one spiritually, you know what I mean? And I was the one that was sort of following him and we, we were best mates and extremely close, extremely close. You know, we would often read the same books and talk about them or, you know, we'd go on long walks and we'd pray and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was, it was, it was really good. And then, you know, we'd go into the, the local markets and stand on, stand on chairs and preach to people in the markets and 100% sold out, no doubt. Just, just a couple of fun guys. Sounds, well, that sounds a bit. Um, <laughs> Well, that's maybe why we were only friends with each other and not a whole lot of other people. <laughs> I mean, I've got to say, people like you freaked me out, as 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 was spoken about before. Like, I was never really that forthright in sharing my faith, and I was quite embarrassed by it. At the times that I did come along to some of those events with you guys where that happened, oh, my God, I just wanted to shrink down. And there was a part of me that really did look at you, a big part of me that looked at you and went, oh, my God, these guys are incredible. Like, these, how they can do this is amazing. 
I could never do this. There is absolutely no way. And I think I used the escape of going, it's just not my personality. I can't do it. And I know there was a lot of people, it wasn't their personality and they still did it, but I wasn't one of those people. I just didn't do it. It freaked me out. And and a lot of it was how people would view me as well. I'd be one of those loonies. Yeah, well, we were we were two of those loonies. You know, look, for what it's worth, even my mother who who loved me and adored me until the day she died, and I her, even she said to me one day, I was out the backyard and I was I had some tapes back in those days, they were cassettes, literal cassettes, and I was listening to Kevin Connor from Waverley Christian Fellowship in Melbourne. I was listening to one of his sermon sets, you know, and my mother walked past and I was sitting out there and I was taking notes and I was listening and everything and my mother walked past and she goes, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm listening to this series on the Ten Commandments or whatever it was. And mum says, you're just not normal. You're just not normal, she said, and turned around and walked away. So it wasn't just you. It was even close family who loved me, B, who thought I just wasn't normal. Well, you know, fair point, fair point. Um, In a lot of people's eyes, I don't think it is normality, but it is normality within the worlds that we lived in, though, wasn't it? It was acceptable, if not normal. And it was sort of lauded too. It was sort of like, wow, this is the way you should be. You know, you should be like this. 100%. I I have absolutely no doubt that people like yourselves were whacked up on pedestals because a lot of people aspired to, to be like that. If not aspired to be, they actually thought it was a way that you had to be. And if you were to be impactful, then that's what you should do. Yeah, well, I, I definitely thought it was the way that we had to be that, you know, and, and feeding into all that was all that sort of Keith Greeny stuff and, and, and even our good friend, Anthony Van Brown, all that every believer evangelism stuff. It was all about being uber spiritual and, you know, out there. And that's very, very Pentecostal, very, very Pentecostal. Very. Do you hear that, Anthony? You are responsible for part of this. Oh, totally is. Totally is. Every believer evangelism, I've got a certificate, I think, <laughs> from him. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's right up there with a few of the degrees you've got, isn't it? It's oh, it is. It's framed. on my wall. It's on my wall. Yeah. So he forgave me, all right? And and so I, I did do this shitty thing. I won't pretend that it wasn't a shitty thing. And, and when I say it was very normal in the club scene and all that kind of stuff, I, I'm not saying there's an excuse. It doesn't make it okay. It's just that that's where I'd come from. And, you know, once you broke up with someone, that person was fair game and, and that was the way it was, right? So I'd come from, a, I guess, a slightly different culture. And I really genuinely didn't believe that I'd done anything wrong. Right. I look back now and think it was a shitty thing to do. But even then, I, you know, I thought it wasn't such a shitty thing to do. Moving forward, number of years, I wanted to remember episode 26, God told me to marry you. Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah, that was one of our most popular episodes so far, by the way, which is quite interesting. That is interesting. And it, and it certainly spurred a lot of uh, conversation in the Facebook page, because I think this is something that really did impact people. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of confusion around the space, but there was also a lot of control. So I'm sure that you experienced a lot of that. Our listeners, there is absolutely no doubt about it. Yeah, you're right. It, it did um, start a lot of conversation in the Facebook group. I want to sort of unpack that story a little bit more, the one I told about the girl who I, I said God told me to marry. I'm even thinking about it now. It's just, again, more embarrassment, people. Thanks for tuning in. Was, it, was there only one? That God told me to marry. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay, only so one. It stands out. Yeah, and, and he was wrong. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but as I said, you know, it's like one part of me spoke to another part of me and said, marry her. But anyway, let's call her L. And I think that's what I called her in that in that episode as well. 
I just want to unpack that more and tell more about that story because there's there's more to that story, right? And and I think it was it was a big signpost, if not a, a kind of a turning point in my great big AOG experience. And so this family was right into the faith movement, yeah. uber into the faith movement, and also Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking, and they weren't necessarily the most grounded in reality family. But the thing about them, and, and, you know, please jump in, you know, because you, you know this family and what they were like, mm. was that they were perceived within Great Big AOG as being another version of this perfection. If um, D and I were this perfection picture of the young evangelists preaching the gospel and, you know, living by faith and da 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 because neither of us were working, by the way, right? We were completely living by faith, which was AKA getting the doll, right? Um, but... <laughs> They were another kind of a picture, right? Because they were, except for dad, the rest of the family were all mum and the, and the daughters. Yeah. But they were extremely well-behaved, extremely well-dressed, spoke eloquently, all of them. They sang. They sang at church a lot and they were really involved in music. And so, you know, they played instruments and sang and all this kind of thing. They had an absolutely beautiful house. I don't know if you remember, but we used to go to suppers at their place and there was just fucking potpourri everywhere and candles and throw rugs. It was somewhere between Country Road and Laura Ashley. That's what their house was like, right? It was just somewhere in the middle of that. And it was just... It was an oasis. It was a beautiful place to go. And so we used to go there for suppers and parties and those kinds of things. And I used to love going there. Do you remember? Yeah, I do. And it's funny, the different perceptions of, of people. I mean, I personally never aspired to be like those people. And I, I think some of it for me was I f probably felt a little bit threatened or insecure around it. I, I'm not exactly sure what it was. But going to their house, I felt uncomfortable to a certain degree because it was quite lavish as to compared to what I grew up with. I, I grew up very working class, large family. Not that we weren't poor, not by any standards, but we lived a very moderate sort of lifestyle. This was a lot more uh, extreme and something that I never thought I could ever attain. So for me, it was, it was a little bit scary. And, that, and for me, I think it also felt artificial what do you think? <laughs> yeah. but, you know, at the time, a lot of people didn't think it was artificial. They just oh, no, I, I, I didn't either. I thought this was like living the blessing of God. Oh, 100%. And, and for me, though, I looked at it at, even at that time and I thought, this just doesn't sit right with me. Not about being rich and being blessed and all that sort of thing because I thought that, you know, that's what God does. He blesses people in our little Western bubble. I felt slightly intimidated and threatened by it. So, But I remember it very well. It was very much part of the fabric of Great Big AOG and lots of different intersections. I mean, we see with The Voice and Australian Idol and, you know, in America, you've got American Idol. Don't know if there's, and I'm sure it's all around the world. Lots of people from big mega churches go onto these shows and quite often win or certainly end up in their, their top two or three. Should that format of television been around back then, I'm certain that some of this... Two or three of these family members would have been in the finals. A hundred percent. You know, they, they were very successful and um, were definitely put up on a pedestal. And it, it, was a, it was a little bit partridge family, 
within it all. I mean, you could you could see that's the the parents were the the perfect parents, which were certainly raising these incredibly successful successful children who were successful because they were all blessed by God. That was that was the view, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They they had a lot of money. Yep. And they they had a lifestyle that was like you were saying very lavish and you know they were they were just constantly spending money and they spent all their time at the at the shopping malls you know that's that's where they they lived and um i think the father was quite successful with his job and with his business and the mother didn't work and then the, the girls were all you know off singing and dancing and they didn't work either you know they'd finished school or finished university whatever and some of them had gone to uni some of them and hadn't i i can't quite remember but they certainly weren't working and they were just waiting to marry basically but they were this picture of perfection i think is is a, is a really good way to to put it and i remember going around to their place for suppers or parties or whatever around christmas time and you know it was just it was decked out like the fucking Maya windows you know their house it was just it was amazing and so when i when i met this girl i didn't know any of this right so when i had this time where i sat down in front of her and started talking with her that night and i said she had these piercing blue eyes and i went home and prayed and everything I, I didn't get that whole picture of who they were. That sort of unfolded later and then they, you know, they started singing more at church because they'd actually joined the church not long before us, B. They hadn't grown up there. They'd actually come from elsewhere. And their father had actually been a pastor, a, an AOG pastor in another church, but he was no longer doing that. He was more focusing on his business and, and that uh, kind of thing. I didn't realise that. There you go. Yeah, so that's where they'd come from. But they seemed perfect. They seemed absolutely perfect. So when I eventually started dating her, one of her younger sisters was not happy that I was dating Elle, okay. like not happy at all. And so she started making trouble for us from the very start and started, you know, bristling and, you know, and all that kind of thing. And so she was sort of already, so I think in her parents' ears about how bad I was and all that, you know, she was just pissed off for whatever reason. I'd never actually really done anything to her or, or anything. We'd actually been friends. So maybe she'd kind of liked me and I went for the sister instead. You know, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't want to, you know, say that's the case if that wasn't the case. But she definitely was was not happy with the relationship. Or maybe, maybe you threatened their existence in some sort of way and didn't want the to upset the apple cart. Like if, if you were coming in and changing the fabric of this family, I don't know. Who knows? I think put a pin in that one, mate, because that's definitely what happened later on. Okay. 100%. But then that threatened the entire family, but we'll come back to that in a minute. So I started dating Elle and she and I w were hanging around a lot more and that kind of thing. And I got to, to know them more and got to see them more. And they were just a weird ass family, man. Like I was in there and just as I sort of broke in and started to see what was really going on, these were not normal people, at least not from where I'd come from not from my little, you know, middle-class suburban life. The way that these people lived was very different to what I was used to. What, what are some examples of that? Well, as I said, nobody except the dad worked. Yeah. And all that the women seemed to do was focus completely around the church and not necessarily evangelism or, any, or you know, feeding the poor or anything like that, just the singing, the sermon, the, the, the suppers, the social thing. And, and the rest of the time, they'd spend shopping. Mm -hmm. Well, we do love shopping. 
Let's, let's not go to bed. Shopping's good, but not to that that extent. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty full on, and 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 they were right into the faith movement, as I said, yeah. like super into the faith movement, where everything that you would say, L would come back to me with, Pastor Hagen says, or Pastor Copeland says, um, and constantly, and and they were big on calling them pastor kind of thing. It was all this sort of you know really lifting them up, and so they were really into that. And I can remember sort of challenging that a couple of times. And really being put in my place. Yeah. Well, you know, you haven't been in the church as long as we have, and we know. And and then that's when I really got into this whole faith movement thing in a massive way was because I was so influenced by them. And I wanted to be accepted by them as well. Yeah, I, I certainly do remember that um, that hyper-faith lens through that family. There, there was no doubt about that. And, and as we said before, I didn't get full on into it. I, I certainly got into the space because I thought that God was there to bless us, make us successful, make us material, uh, it, sorry, to bring us material wealth. And I, I think there was a real pressure within the scene. There, there was no doubt about that because I I went into debt a lot just to get the right clothes, to get the right look. I remember maxing out a couple of credit cards just because I had to shop at the right place to look right and these people looked right like they were people that you would aspire to because they dress sharp they look good they're all attractive you know what though yet at the same time having come from a really clubbed out world before i joined you know in between revival center and great big aog Mm. i came into great big aog and, and yeah they were spending money and they were buying all this sort of country road and jag kind of stuff that's what they were but they didn't they didn't quite get it do you know what I mean? And this is going to sound really arrogant, I'm sorry, but they just didn't quite dress right, you know what I mean? It was like it was still really suburban, churchy kind of fashion, albeit expensive, you know what I mean? It was still pretty shitty and daggy. Oh, absolutely, but they were marketing themselves to the bubble. And I think within that bubble that there was an aspiration to dress like that. Country Road and Jag, for those playing at home, were very big in the 90s in Australia and certainly cost a shitload. Like I, I look at the money I spend on clothes back then. I would never spend that now. I would always look, and I've got a lot more money now than and I did back then. But that's what you aspire to. And they looked like that. They looked like the mannequins in the front of those shops. So I agree. When you look outside the bubble, it probably wouldn't have related and they would have just stood out as, as a bunch of conservatives. But within the bubble, I don't know. They they definitely stood out as uh, a notch above. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I was more into sort of surf, dive and ski kind of stuff at that point, you know, like, well, at least when I first came in, I was more into, you know, Stussy and, and you know, wearing the right Reeboks and that kind of stuff. Still expensive, but certainly not that sort of preppy kind of look. It was more sort of, you know, streetwear, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. I remember when I was dating Elle, we had started getting more involved in this street outreach that we were doing you know with the street kids and um so you start to dress more like i started to dress more like someone that was on the streets because you're relating to these people and she actually had a word to me right? not a word for me from god like a word with me and said you're not dressing so well anymore you really need to focus on i'm not kidding she actually had a, a conversation with me and said you need to dress better and i was like oh okay you know and then i think my 21st birthday was around that time maybe and, and i got just got money from my parents and went you know splashed out on a whole heap of clothes the right clothes the right clothes 100 percent. the right clothes you know and yeah but anyway at first the parents were really quite welcoming 
and they were really quite lovely, at least they appeared to be. You know, used to go there for dinner and, and, and bits and pieces. And I remember going to her house one day and you remember I told you it was just throw rugs and big couches and potpourri and it was just a really nice place to sit around. And so she and I were lying on the couch, right, not lying on each other, not anything untoward like I was lying one way and she was lying across my legs you know face up kind of thing so it was nothing sexual or anything and even by church standards it was fine you know and her mum walks in and then looks at us and then turns around and walks out and then it was like you know beat of three kind of thing and then opened the door and said nope I can't accept this this is unacceptable that you are lying here like this in my house and just went to town like full on and then we both sat up and like I said we really weren't we weren't making out. We weren't, you know, I wasn't dry humping her on the couch or anything. I swear. I was like, you know, she was lying across the bottom of my legs, you know, more towards my feet kind of thing, you know, and we were reading, we we're probably reading Andrew Murray or Charles Spurgeon or something, you know, like we were just, you know, there. Anyway, she went at us. It's quickly she came in, she was out the door, yeah. right? And she was gone again. And then I sat up and I looked at Elle and Elle goes, you know, we really need to pray for my mum these days. And I'm like, what are you talking? And the next thing you know, mum comes walking back in. I am so sorry. I am so sorry I did that. I don't even know why I did that. I am so sorry. I love you so much, you know. And she comes up and she throws her arms around us and she's kissing us both. And you two are just so wonderful. And the Lord is going to bless you. And, you you know, full on, you know, like, and then left again. <laughs> I was just like, you know, like, I wouldn't have said this back then. But, of course, it was, it was just fucking odd. Yeah. Like, just odd. Maybe she's worried about foot fetishes developing. If, um, you know, she's lying that close to your feet, I mean, it's, she's only human. Yeah, well, that's right. I could have tickled her, tickled her with my toes. <laughs> so anyway, more and more, it started to appear that Elle didn't want me to go to the house, but she would come and see me outside, right? So, you know, we'd, we'd go to my place or we'd go shopping or we'd go to the movies and, we'd, you know, do all that kind of stuff. But I wasn't really welcome at the house so much. Right. And I thought it was because of the sister making trouble. But at the same time, it was, you know, where I told that story, oh, we have to pray for my mum. We have to pray for my mum. Why? I can't tell you why, but we have to pray for my mum. We have to pray for my mum. It turned out that mum was going, and I didn't know this at the time, right? But I said this in the in that other episode, where mum was going in and out of the psych ward. Yeah. Okay. Because mum was having some sort of psychiatric issues. Now, it was interesting because I didn't know this, but I can remember Elle telling me, oh, yeah, my mum used to get attacked by the devil all the time. She used to be lying in bed and hearing parties in the backyard. Yeah. And I'd be like, really? And, and then she'd go out in the backyard and there was no one there. Or she had a friend of hers that was taken up by aliens many times and had her teeth fixed. <laughs> True story. <laughs> her teeth fixed. I always remember that was really strange. Really, the aliens would come and fix your teeth. And and these and the, the sort of stories that they would tell about these extreme spiritual experiences, even at that stage, I remember thinking, that sounds more mental than spiritual. And I remember, B, you were talking about, and I thought we could unpack this a little bit now, you were talking about working in the space that you work in, how many evangelicals, Pentecostals come through the mental health system? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as I said in the episode, we, I don't, I don't know stats, but anecdotally, it's, it's a very high percentage. Um, quite often, it's people who've been attracted to the church too, and they've been marginalised, they've got mental health issues, they go into the church and it gets exacerbated, and they come out with their 
delusions around, you know, being God, being Jesus, and it, it's or meeting them or, or whatever. So there, there certainly is a, a fairly big aspect. Also within uh, my family, I have had a member or two that have gone into to psych units and quite often you would go in there and there was people that they would come up to you and it would be spiritual babble. Nothing really made sense. But I don't know whether that's because Christians outreach to people with psych issues um, and it becomes embedded in them or some of it is that they are Christians who have then um, through their developed mental health issues um, as a, a range of responses to what's happened in their life. I'm not sure chicken and egg stuff quite often, but do you remember Ange Barker in the episode? She told the story about how she had a they had a foster son who believed he was Jesus and they went to visit him in the psych ward and he'd been having a fight with the kid who thought he was the Holy Spirit. Yes. It it tends to manifest itself, doesn't it? We I mean we know that that it tends to manifest itself mental illness in terms of spirituality often, even if people don't come from a spiritual background. Yeah, which is really interesting. And and I think that's where a lot of Christians quite often go, well, it's obviously spiritual, isn't it? It's not mental health, it's spiritual. Let's just pray for them and things will get better. Mm, that, that Maybe they're not mental, maybe they're just seeing the reality. Yeah, that's right. They've got a, a glimpse into another world. And, and I know in a, a lot of cultures, like we really peg schizophrenia that you have to medicate for it, uh, protect people by putting them into an institutional setting to protect them and protect others. Some societies and some cultures hold these people up as shamans, as healers and people that see into the spiritual realm and we don't really understand because they're of a higher spiritual, on a higher spiritual plane. So there definitely is a, a cultural context to it as well. So coming back to my story, yeah. So that's what was going on, right? I had believed that God had told me this is going to be my wife. So we're dating. It, it's all going good. And, and I want to sort of stress that from when I joined the church, probably from about 91, right, when I had sex for the last time until I got married in 96. So I was celibate, abstinent, whatever you want to call it, from 91 through to 96. Yep. So as much as I'd, you know, slept with this girl at the beginning and I tell these stories about, you know, coming from a sort of a club world and still, you know, quite sexually active, I really didn't go around sleeping with people. Yeah. It wasn't something that, you know, that I was going on. I don't want to be thrown into the sexual predators episode or anything, you know. No, no, no. Um, there was a time Elle and I were in the car, you know, parking. We used to say, you know, don't go parking in erogenous zones. <laughs> um, we, you know, we were parking in the car one night and we got a bit, heated and you know some some things were touched but it was all above the belt you know and and that was as pretty much as bad as it as it ever got so I was very much playing that you know respectable role and I think the revival center had also built in this fear of sexual immorality and f -f 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 fornication um after what I'd gone through it just wasn't a line that I was willing to cross again yeah fair cool. um now that I was believing it all um, so, yeah, so so we were leading this really holy, spiritual relationship. I was at Bible college. She was staying home. Darning, darning socks, I think, was was the language. Darning socks. Yeah, darning socks. Yeah, she was, she was doing that. Well, actually, no, she was paying someone to darn socks. Trust me. That's what was going on there. But nevertheless, there was just some serious shit going on in that family. And the other thing I, I noticed was they had no friends, even mm. in the church. 
they had no friends. They would go to church and talk to people. They would hang out with people at suppers and that kind of thing, but then they would come home and none of the kids, none of the daughters, the mum, hung out with anybody except each other. So it became this sort of fortress. I noticed that they put a lot of energy into worrying about what people think. Yeah. Right? And I really want to stop for a moment, B, and really talk about this because these people were definitely an exacerbated version of this, but we spent a lot of time in church worrying about what people think. But these people in particular, so much so that they didn't trust anyone and they wouldn't make friends with people or have any sort of close intimate relationships other than with each other because they were so guarded about keeping their secret secret and their personal struggle secret and no one would dare know what's really going on. Yeah, it definitely was a part. I was an observer. I was always on the outside looking in because I wasn't, as you say, no one was friends with them, but I certainly wasn't friends with them. Uh, and and I didn't have a great deal to do with the family as a whole. I had, you know, individual members had a little bit more to do with them. But I agree, there was a lot of, you, you had to almost guard your brand uh, in that space because if, if you looked at the people who were successful, the people who were out front, who were on the stage, they all dressed well. They all looked well. They spoke well. They set off a really... A, a vibe of success. You, and none the, of them had struggles with anything, no. with any kind of sin or any kind of vice. Nobody. God, no. No, that's right. It, it was a very artificial uh, environment, I think, as a whole. But these, definitely this this family was um, a notch above in the, in the artificial world. Um, slightly robotic in some of the responses. There wasn't a great deal of emotionality i think but definitely yeah uh, the whole scene was you worried about what people thought of you how you looked if you're going to be accepted into different parts you you had to really put off the vibe of success in some sort of way and it wasn't an environment where you would expose your weaknesses or expose your struggles in any, any sort of way you would do that i think within a a smaller group of trusted individuals but even then did you really trust them to, to keep your secrets, your struggles, and to really support you? You really had to pick your battles there and you had to identify those that you knew would be there to support you through thick and thin. And they were few and far between. Mm. Yeah, indeed. So in fairness to this family, whilst they were an extreme version of, of what we'd experienced, everybody was sort of living that at yep. great big AOG to a point. But yeah, but they, they're on another level. So... She and I, right, we were young. Um, I was in my low 20s. She was in her sort of mid-20s. And the next step, of course, was to get engaged, Mm -hmm. right? And so I had a word from God that, you know, I was going to marry her and all this kind of stuff. And I told her and she was believing it too, um, or at least she was telling me she believed it. And so we went to her parents and asked them if we could get married, if we could get engaged. What were you wearing? Exactly. I don't know, man. Who knows? But you know where this story's going, right? So, so I go to the parents with her, and you know, her father sitting there. And the thing was, we never saw the dad. Just never saw him. Even when I was over there, just never saw him. You know. And so he turned up and was like, "Oh, that's right. There's there's a man that lives in this family too." (laughs) And we sat down and we had a talk. And I said, "I want to marry your daughter." And 
I wasn't expecting the response that I got, right? Because remember, I thought I was living the success, right? I was at Bible college and I was preaching and I was the evangelist and I was this and that and I was doing, you know, all the things that I was doing. And they said, well, we believe because of our exposure to Pastor Hagen and Pastor Copeland and that not only is it okay to be blessed and they wouldn't have said affluent, but, you know, rich. Yeah. But it's also very spiritual to be rich and to be blessed. And we don't see that in you. Wow. We don't see you having a lot of money, basically. You know, they didn't say it in those words, but that's basically what it was. And this was the same girl that said to me that day, I'm not going to buy you your quarter pounder with cheese. You've got to, you know, you've got to pray for it, right? You know, and, and so that's where I think this was coming from, you know, and remembering too that God did come through. And gave me five dollars, but five dollars obviously wasn't enough. Is this a segue to our sponsors, McDonald's? Yeah, again? that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, and, and, yeah. and Hungry Jack's Burger King. Yeah. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, what? I, like I'm 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 doing it all, right? I've 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 sacrificed a career. Not that I had one, but you know, at least I'm not pursuing one. I've um, I'm going to Bible college. I'm you know going to church. You know, thirty-seven times a week. Um, I'm doing it all. And here they are saying, no, because you don't have the money. You don't, you know, and, and I can remember th this, this line. It was like, our daughters are not used to living hand to mouth. And I'm afraid that if she marries you, she will live hand to mouth. It's scary, isn't it? Do you think it wholly and solely came down to not enough money? Or do you reckon there was anything else behind that? Who knows? But definitely the money thing was a big part of it because that's what they led with. And that was, that was, that was where they went. Yeah. Um, I think, I think there were other things because I told you the sister had sort of been agitating and, you know, and the other thing was I wasn't, I think they could see that I wasn't going to keep their secrets. I think they could see that I was quite open with my life, you know, like that what you saw was what you got and there was no you know, and this is what we were just talking about a moment ago about keeping that that image and, you know, maintaining the brand. I think they could see that I wasn't going to be very good at that. And I think that was important to them as well. Well, you obviously, you didn't dress right with all your street wear also. Oh, well, no, I changed but I changed that by then because she had a word with me, right? So oh, I'd, yeah. I don't know, I'd borrowed money off mum or whatever I'd done, mum and dad. So, yeah, so what they said was they didn't split us up. But what they said was we're not going to give our okay to marry, but we'll give you our okay to be engaged. I know, I know this is cultish double talk. So we got their permission to be engaged, to be engaged. Wow. What does that even look like? Yeah, exactly. You know, there was no ring, there was nothing because I was, you know, I was in Bible college and I was, you know, wanting to do all that sort of later on. You know, I'm thinking later on, we'll, you know, I'll get a paid ministry position and, you know, and then then I'll be on millions now, and then I'll be you know able to 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 provide for it. So that was as far as that got, and then we just sort of went back to being a couple in church, and we were engaged to be engaged, and so the relationship went on, and I thought it was okay. We're still praying for Mum, but not knowing why, <laughs> right? I'm, that's all still going on, and then one day, and I don't know if we'd been going out, maybe I don't know if it even was a year, B that we were going out and already we were looking at getting engaged to be engaged to be engaged. <laughs> but um, her parents asked to see us. And so we went to see them 
And her parents, basically, that was the day that her mum said that she got a word from God. Uh, yeah. And that we were to split up. Of course. What did you do with that? I mean, what, what happened? I cried. You, you cried? Yeah, of course you did. I cried because I thought that God had spoken to me. Yeah. And a lot of my narrative on my marriage and what was going to happen and everything was all tied into this girl and this word from God. And so she and I jumped in a car, went driving, and she was okay with it, which really wasn't really good, you know. I think that already worded her up. And as I said in the other episode, I think she was okay with it because she didn't want to live hand to mouth either. Yeah. So here you are. You're in a point where God has told you this person is your wife. Pursue it. You've pursued it. It started happening. You're getting you're, you're engaged to be engaged. That's just to be engaged, to be engaged. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. I feel like I'm in Inception or something. It's bizarre. What's that do to you? What's that do to your your faith? Like, or or did you think these people are just fucked up and they obviously don't know the voice of God? No, I know the voice of God. What to do? No, 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 because he was a pastor. He Mm. was an AOG pastor, you know, not at great big AOG, but he was an AOG pastor. So all of a sudden, I've got a pastor telling me that my wife, who he knew was in and out of the psych ward, by the way, mm-hmm. um, is getting a word from God and it's all. And so I, I think he he capitalised on that. You know, he, he may well have known, you know, that, you know, the wife's in and out of, well, he would have known that the wife was in and out of the psych ward, but you know what I'm saying. He may well have tempered it all, but the way that he presented to me was, this is the word that my wife's got from God. Also, you, you're, you're a poor ass son of a bitch. You're not marrying my daughter. It really threw me, it really hurt because I felt at that moment rejected by this family, right? I really did deeply, deeply rejected, but on spiritual grounds. Yeah. They basically told me, you don't have enough faith to have enough money to marry our daughter. And the the cognitive dissonance of the faith movement thing just became really real in that moment because like, hold on. No, no, no. I'm living it. I'm living hand to mouth, preaching the gospel, going to Bible college, doing everything that they said that we should be doing. Yeah. But I'm not earning a bazillion dollars. And you can't, unless you're Brian Houston, you can't earn a bazillion dollars. You know, none of the pastors at Great Big AOG were earning a bazillion dollars. No. But that's what they were doing to me. So I felt really hurt. But also it was like, so did I hear God? Did God really speak to me? And it, it just threw me, B. My whole faith at that point was just super challenged in that moment. But I, I guess what I really want to stress is I felt really rejected because this was a high-profile family yeah. in the church, really well-respected, and they just rejected me on spiritual grounds. Yeah. Look, I, I have a theory that if you weren't at Bible College and you owned a business that was bringing in some good money that could support that lifestyle that they've become accustomed to, then I have no doubt that you would have been framed as very spiritual. But I, I think that's that that tension in that in the whole Pentecostalism, at least when we were there, was on the one hand, you've got all this prosperity, blab it and grab it. And the other hand, you've, you've still got the sacrifice, give all for the gospel. There was, there was two voices there, wasn't there? Yeah, there was many voices. So some voices heard and saw parties in your backyard, obviously, too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Got their teeth fixed. <laughs> See, that's probably why they had so much money, because they didn't need a dentist. No, <laughs> that's right. I, I flew to Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam to get my teeth fixed. 
Um, so that was that was my way of getting an angel to fix my teeth. That's for sure. It's a scary world, though, isn't it? Like I, I reflect back on that world, and I I think we've said this now, and our faith episode as well. I've had a couple of family members that have dived very very deeply into that hyper faith space. Fortunately, I have never felt that uh, they've judged me for not uh, being wealthy enough or they've judged me for plenty of other things but uh, I haven't had that judgment cast but I have had that cast by many many others along the way I mean it's an impenetrable bubble that that space sometimes and and I think the one that you were involved in was an incredibly damaging and impenetrable bubble and when you did try to penetrate it pardon the pun but i didn't try to penetrate it let's just make that clear there was no penetration <laughs> i'm questioning a foot fetish though so i'm sorry <laughs> next thing you know a couple of months go by and all of a sudden d my friend right my whole you know discipleship friend best friend you know and he had seen everything that had, i told him all this weird ass shit that had gone on you know yada yada yeah and all of a sudden, he distances himself from me. No conversation, nothing. Just, I'm ringing him up. No, I can't come. I'm busy. No, I can't meet you. Dada. Full on for weeks. And I'm like, what the heck's going on, right? And and then when we did catch up a couple of times, he was really standoffish, really cold. And I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. And then I ring him up. One day, and I said, look, what's going on? And he said, well, I've been talking with my dad, and my dad really wants me to get a job, and he thinks you're not good for me. Oh, God. And I was like, what? And here it was again, this kind of rejection, boom, based on, you know, because you're going this path, this ministry path, this Bible college, this, you know, no, nah, my dad wants me to have a job and everything, and he says you're not good for me, and I think he might be right, and so, and then that was that, and all of a sudden, like in the space of a couple of months, I'd lost my girlfriend, and then my best friend, yeah, and so I was really alone. But here's the rub. After church one night, L comes up to me and says, "Did you tell D that we got hot and heavy in the car one night?" And I'm like, what? Did you tell D that we got hot and heavy? And I said, um, yeah, because you know you confess your sins one to another kind of thing. It wasn't it wasn't a, a brag, of course. And she said, I can't believe you've done that. And then she looked at me and she said, you stole my innocence and then you betrayed me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like oh, more weirdness, man. You know. And then of course I find out a little bit after that that they've paired up. D and L have now paired up. And so it made sense to me, not then, it took me a look, because I'm really naive and trusting and, you know, that that's partly why he was distancing himself. And that's partly why perhaps she wanted to split up because she was into him, which is fine, right? We were just dating. We weren't married or anything. Yeah. But all of a sudden they were a, a couple and she was pissed off at me for not keeping her secrets. Mm-hmm. And he was, man, there was so much going on. And I thought to myself years later, I thought maybe it's because deep down he never really forgave me for what I did with that girl in the foyer. Maybe. I don't know. But it just seemed really, or maybe it was just karma. 
that he starts dating my ex-girlfriend like I dated his. But that was the end of both those relationships. Bang. I was alone. What did that do for you? I'm not going to ask because you always say, how did that make you feel? Yeah, how did that but, make you feel, T? Made me feel like shit, B. Fucking... I'm going to reframe it. <laughs> what did that do for you? Mate, all of a sudden it was just like this double-barrel rejection, mm. right? And so this story that I'm telling now, you know, this whole episode, it's not so much about great big AOG as much as my relationships and dynamics and experiences within great big AOG, right? I'm not sitting there saying that everyone that goes there is going to have this sort of experience. But what it did was I was dealt these massive blows and this wasn't lining up with my theology. Yeah. I was here in God and I was going to marry this girl and then I'm rejected from her because I'm not earning enough. Then meanwhile, my friend's father is telling him that he shouldn't be friends with me because I'm living this hand. And it was the same story. It was, you know, oh, you're going to be living hand to mouth. You need to go and get a job and earn a lot of money. And he did. And then he got this girl, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, this isn't what I signed up for, which is funny because when you think about the sort of Ange Barker Christianity, it's exactly what I should have signed up for. Yeah. But I wasn't expecting to be rejected by people because, within the church because I'd chosen this road. Did it, did it start to rock your faith? Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Do you, do you see this as a, a key point for you? Yeah, which is exactly why I wanted to bring this in to our podcast right because this was a signpost this was a major impacting experience that hit me that all of a sudden the theology broke down relationships had broken down none of it made so much sense anymore i was hurting i was really hurting because not so much because i missed her but more because i missed him mm. you know what i mean it's that old joke you know my 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 best friend my wife's ran off with my best friend and i miss him <laughs> that was that was it you know, as far as I was concerned, this was God's woman for my life, whatever. Okay, see it. But but he was my mate for absolute years. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he was gone. Now, they may tell a different story. Yeah. They may say that, you know, I said this and I said that. And that's cool. I'm open to that, right? You know, because I'm not saying that I was living, you know, some sort of perfect. I was a, you know, judgmental, harsh, born-again Christian. But all the same, I didn't get it at the time. I really didn't understand. And all of a sudden, I was I was alone. You know what happened then? Then I hooked up with my soon-to-be wife. I was very vulnerable. I was very lonely. I was hurting. So was she. Yeah. She was really broken and damaged. She was a pastor's daughter, yeah. right? And she'd seen a lot of shit, and she was really angry and hurt and bitter at the church. And I was, you know, hurt and bitter at these people, but still not at the church, and I really wasn't. Yeah. And we sort of found each other mm. and, and connected. And we started dating. And I, and I think that's where I'm going to sort of leave that story because that's, I, I guess, another episode, right? What happened after that? Everything changed in that time. So that's probably somewhere around 94. Okay. So I come into the church 90, and this is about 94. I had my Bible college. I had this new girlfriend. You know, you and I were still friends, and I had, you know, other friends from Bible college, etc. But these two massive relationships had had ended. And and I, I guess even though I've told the story more about Elle, I think the bigger impact was losing my friendship with Dee. Yep. Most certainly. But let's let's certainly pick it up in another episode. I'm sure that there is there's plenty more episodes to do with relationships in some sort of way. But shitty situation. Sorry you had to go through that, but in the same way. 
think it was a very important pivot point in your life and your faith and uh, you know all those little bits in our journeys that uh, I guess pivot us to where we are now and there will be plenty more pivot points ahead of us will, which will pivot us into other directions. I'm, I'm watching you try and pull the good out of this one. That, that is the good. That is the good that, you know, we learn by the shit. Um, and, and it's horrible, but there's lasting scars from it. Um, what's what's Josie's, Josie's saying? It's a science, science of injury. Of, science of injury, yeah. yeah. You know, the other thing, I'm really glad now, of course, that the parents split us up yep. because I would have been married into that freak show. Yeah. And I'm really glad I'm not. Yeah, absolutely. Well, who knows how long would have lasted? Who who knows? But I think you dodged a bullet by the sound of it anyway. Exciting times, though, coming up next week. Who do we have, T? We have Bart Campolo, which is really cool. So Bart is the son of famous evangelist and high-profile evangelical preacher Tony Campolo. Remember, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. That was him. And so his son is coming on to our podcast for a special two-part episode, which we will release in the same day, but it's two-parter nonetheless. Yeah, and it's really cool. And and I guess one thing that we have tried to do very strongly in our conversations with Bart before the interview is say to him, we want to make this about you. So we are making it about him. Of course, there'll be intersections with his dad and the intersections given that, uh, you know, they have released that movie, Leaving My Father's Faith. But it's about Bart. It's about his journey, but also where he is and where he's going. Yeah, I think if you want to do a little bit of homework beforehand is to watch the movie. Yeah. You can actually find it. I think it's on, was it Vivo? No, it wasn't Vivo. Vimeo. Vimeo, yeah, it's on Vimeo. And you can download that for about $1.44 for a a week or something. It's like renting it. So if you want to do a little bit of pre-work and watch that so you know what we're talking about, go ahead and do that. I think that would be a really good thing to do. Yeah, it's a great movie. It, it really is. And um, some of it's quite confronting because, you know, some of those conversations they're having are really difficult, but gee, it's handled, handled uh, beautifully. So I really enjoyed watching it. Yeah, the interview is a cracker. We've loved it. I know that was a heavy episode and it was a heavy episode for me. I think I'm going to have to go and sniff some potpourri and throw a throw rug down and light a candle i think that's what i'm gonna have to do just to just to calm the hell down i actually know that's i I was gonna say as as uh, (laughs) someone who works in the field i suggest you don't do that because i think it might you might get get triggers all right mate i'll see you next week for bart campolo i'm really excited about this one i think it's gonna be great all righty see you people and look after yourself too